Glad you're with us. My name's Bryant, um, lead pastor, teaching pastor here. And whether you're here and um, maybe this series is one of the things that drew you and you're not sure about where you are with faith and the Jesus thing, we have so much genuine respect for you. So I'm glad you're here. If you're investigating, um, we say often you can argue with me in your minds. It's a great series to do that with. Um, but we are glad you're here. We'd love to connect with you. We want to make it as personal as possible. And Or maybe you're on the side of longtime follower of Jesus looking to grow in your faith. We think you can do both simultaneously. Investigate and have those growing in their faith. And so if we can connect with you, please visit us in the lobby. And one thing I wanted to let you know about is in June, we start something brand new called Growth Track. You can get the information at those Connect Point Bistros. And this is for anybody, whether you've been here two weeks or two years, if you want to know how to grow in your faith as part of our church, this movement, and you want to know how to connect here, um, this step, this environment is for you. Growth Track is four weeks long. It runs every month, first through the fourth weeks during this service, actually. So we would love for you to not come to this service for a few weeks, starting in June, and um, head into that. If you been here for two years, we'd love for you to grab a friend and go to that because we think it'll be beneficial. But our big goal as our church continues to grow is to really connect people and help them grow here because our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. So check out that information. That's all you need to know right now, but that's starting in June. And then last thing, I just wanted to thank everybody who served sacrificially, some, some of you four, five, six services, some maybe seven over Easter weekend, and did an unbelievable job of just tearing away unnecessary barriers for people to connect with Jesus, who maybe hadn't been in a church in a long time, and created what we try to do all the time, which is make this the most welcoming and accessible place um, in our area and make it easy for people who have any kind of struggle to be able to feel free to struggle here, to investigate here, to feel welcome welcomed here to belong before you believe. And we had um, 1,600 people here over that weekend and dozens and dozens placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So would you give you a hand or all those who served last weekend a hand for doing that? Phenomenal. All right, so I want to dive in and just to give a little bit of uh, like heads up with these series. These are always very, very different. So if you're like, man, is this how it is all the time? You can go listen to podcasts, all right? So it's gonna be a little different. Some of the messages, I'm gonna give you a heads up to not leave till the end, all right? Um, so you just, you gotta hang with me. You gotta trust me. Um, I'm specifically talking to some of you Jesus followers because I'm going somewhere. So we're gonna take this journey over the next four or five weeks. And some of the resources that have been extraordinarily helpful is um, Making Sense of God and the Reason for God by Tim Keller and a series called Who Needs God and Jesus Among Secular Gods by Ravi Zacharias. And so we may put those out at the end of the series if you're a nerd like me and want to dive in deeper. But all of it has been in an effort to answer the title question of our series. Does God make sense? Does belief in God make sense? Does faith in God make sense? Uh, Does intellectually embracing God make sense? And is that even possible to intellectually embrace God? And I guess the other question really is this, is why do we have to ask the question? Like, why do we have to ask a question of who um, or does God make sense? Because with something that big, you would just think we would know. Like, why does there have to be faith? Like, I don't have to get up in the morning with my wife and like, I believe I'm her husband. I believe I'm her husband. I, I never have to do that. I don't have to get up with my kids and like, I believe I'm their dad. Other than my eight-month-old who is freakishly large and I, there is tinges of doubt sometimes. Is he my kid? I don't know. Um, but he is my kid. But they're, they're, like, I don't have to get up and go, I, you know, I believe I'm their dad. I just know. So why with something as big as, as God, why do we have to ask the question, does God make sense? Why wouldn't we just know? Why does it have to be so hard? And so it's a legit question. And some of you are on the side of, yeah, God makes sense. And in fact, you're a little offended that I would ask the question and you're a little offended by the title of the series, but there's a place for this. Like if you know the scriptures um, and you look at Paul on Mars Hill in the first century, there's a place for what we're gonna do and what we're gonna discuss over the next few weeks. And in fact, I I don't think Christians have done it enough because we believe, and this may be hard for you to grasp, that this is an intellectual faith that this isn't just blind faith. So for some of you, it's a yes, but then on the other side of you, does God make sense? A lot of you are no, or maybe you wouldn't answer no, but I've kind of drifted away from really believing that it makes sense and it seems a little irrelevant and maybe it seems a little bit unappealing. And so you would just say, I, I'm not sure, or just no, God, 
doesn't make sense. And here's the thing that I would say in trying to be as objective as I can as a preacher's kid who grew up with this and was in Sunday school and did lame flannel graph and those stories. Trying to be objective is I can kind of see really good reasons for why you would have trouble believing that this makes sense. Like if you're a Christian, if we can just be objective for a second, this whole thing gets started with Adam and Eve in a garden with a talking snake. And then a few chapters over, or actually before that, they eat an apple and their eating of the apple jacks up the entire universe. And then a few chapters over, you have a guy who builds a boat the size of a freaking cruise ship thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. And then a flood comes and destroys the entire planet. And then you throw in a talking donkey somewhere, somewhere in the Old Testament. And then you get into the New Testament and you have a savior who comes and is born to a teenage virgin and then lives a perfect life and allows himself to be brutally murdered on the cross and doesn't do anything about it. But then he comes back to life. And after he comes back to life, he says, you don't need to do anything to have a connection with God. I've done everything for you. You just need to trust in me. And one day I'm going to come back, but it's a secret. I can't tell you when, so you're just going to have to wait on that. And then at the end of the whole deal, it's going to end like an epic video game. But until that happens and until I come back, I want you to on a regular basis, remember the fact that I bled to death for you. And I want you to pray for me, even though I'm invisible. So that's going to be a little difficult. And the end of the whole deal, I'm going to bound Satan. I'm going to throw him into hell and all of the world is going to be made right again. Any takers? Like right there, I could just give an invitation, sing us and bring the band up. Like there, there's a part of it where if we can just be objective, it, it, you, you could see how you'd have trouble making sense of it all. But here's the other thing that I think is interesting, and you might not admit this, is even if you're at the place where you would answer no to that question, it's funny how curious you are about the question. Because there's something in you sometimes where you still, every once in a while, and I have some friends who would say they're atheist, agnostic, whatever, and I'll ask this question every once in a while, not making fun, but just legitimately like, do you ever find yourself praying? They're like, yeah, sometimes I accidentally pray to a God I don't believe in. Because it's just in us. Like sometimes you find yourself getting angry at God and then you got to remind yourself, I don't even believe in God. Why am I getting angry at a God I don't believe in, right? Because there's something in us where there is a natural curiosity about God for most of us. It's as if, to quote um, Mark Illis, a humanity scholar, it's as if we have to learn indifference. There's just this thing inside of us. So even if you would answer no, there's some kind of draw where you still are curious about the question, does God make sense? Is any of this legit? Is any of this real? Then for others of you, the question really isn't, does God make sense? The better question is probably this, does religion make sense? Does religion make any sense? Does it have any benefit? And one of the things that's really interesting, and this is part of the driving force of this series, is that over specifically about the last 15 years, there has been a mass exodus among Americans and many who grew up in the church, many who grew up around Christianity, but a mass exodus away from faith, away from church, away from believing that God makes sense. And there's not a mass exodus toward atheism necessarily. There's just a mass exodus away from the faith that many people grew up with to say, I just don't know if I believe it. It's not that appealing. It's kind of irrelevant to me. And there's a bunch of people in that group who would actually say, and maybe you're here today and this is where you land, of I actually think that religion is a part of the problem. I think religion is the thing that maybe needs to be eradicated. One of the really interesting things is, and you may not fully have known about this, but in the early 2000s, specifically right after 9-11, there was, there was a, a resurgence of faith after 9-11. Like people filled churches and, and it lasted a short amount of time. And then on the other side of 9-11, shortly after, there was a resurgence in what they would call a new atheism movement. And a bunch of books were written and a bunch of guys kind of got on the late um, late night talk show circuit and just kind of became rock stars. One of them is Sam Harris um, and others. Um, and in that, specifically right after 9-11, Sam Harris floated a manuscript for a book called The End of Faith. And the subtitle is Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason. And in this time of floating these 12 manuscripts, he, or 12 times floating his manuscript, he got rejected every single time. 
because everybody believed that shortly after 9-11, nobody would want to read a scathing indictment on all religion. And that's what Sam Harris's book was. It was a scathing indictment, not just on Islam, maybe people would read that after 9-11, but a scathing indictment on every single religion and making the point that religion is the problem. Eventually, they published Sam Harris's books, or book, and it spent 33 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. And so Christians obviously were up in arms. They were absolutely angry um, at Sam Harris. So Sam Harris followed it up with another book, Letter to a Christian Nation, and just decided to rock everybody's world to go, Christianity is the problem. Christianity is the thing that is, is, is contributing to what we're experiencing, the problem of what we are experiencing. And then right after that, Richard Dawkins wrote his brilliant book and, and famous book, The God Delusion. And in it, Richard Dawkins' whole goal was not so much to move people to, I mean, it was to move people toward atheism, but he wasn't so much defending atheism as he was, again, making the case that religion as a whole is the problem. And in Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, he makes very clear what his intentions were. And here's a quote from the book. He says, if this book works as I intend... Religious readers who open it will be atheists when they put it down. And he sold 3 million copies of The God Delusion, and it was eventually translated into 35 different language, languages. And during that time, what you found was, again, not a mass exodus toward atheism or toward what they would call this new atheism movement, because essentially what they did was came along and kind of updated what atheism is. But what you did see is kind of a continuation of what had already begun, where unprecedented numbers of Americans began to walk away from faith, began to walk away from the God of their childhood, determined that it was just kind of unappealing and irrelevant. And there were so many that began to, to kind of walk away that they actually came up with a term for them. And the term for this group walking away from faith simply entitled, and Tim Keller makes this point in his book, they're called the nuns. So maybe if nothing else today, you may find a title for yourself that you didn't know and you can go home and, hey, tell your mom or your dad, hey, I'm a nun. I need to spell it out for you, but I'm a nun. And the nun category is basically this. They're not hostile toward God it's just kind of irrelevant to them. They're not hostile toward God, it's just unappealing. They're not hostile toward God, but they just don't know if they believe any of it anymore. And it's not that atheism is so much more attractive or appealing, but that the God thing is just more unappealing. And so they find themselves kind of in this middle ground of, like, don't ask us any hard questions because we're not really sure. We're still maybe investigating, figuring it out. But what we do know is that the God of our childhood, or in many cases, the God we grew up with, just doesn't make sense to us anymore. And we're just unaffiliated, but we're not hostile. And we're not running necessarily toward atheism. We're just, we're just in this place of, you know, we got jobs and education and, and we don't really have time to think about it. And so there's this whole category that makes up 23% of all of Americans and about 35% of all millennials who are categorized as nuns. I'm just unaffiliated. I'm not hostile, but I just don't know that I believe it any longer. Now, what the other interesting thing about this is this, that as you look globally, the opposite is true. That in fact, despite maybe what some, some of the things that you've read, Christianity globally is growing at absolutely unprecedented rates. And not just in third world countries, but in the most secular countries. And in fact, and this is a whole other message and argument, in the most secular countries, developed countries, Christianity is growing the fastest. In the Washington Post, they published an article by the Pew Research Center not that long ago that said the 21st century will be more religious than the 20th century. And specifically, Christianity is growing at unprecedented rates around the globe. In fact, here's just a couple statistics for you real quick at a global level. And the first one is just this. More Christians attended church in Europe than there were in all Christian Europe last week. By 2020, Christianity will have grown from 11.4 million Christians in East Asia. That's China, Korea, and Japan in 1970, which was 1.2% of the population, to 17.1 million people and 10.5% of the population by 2020. In 1910, only 12 million people or 9% of Africa's population were Christians. They will number 630 million or 
49.3% of the population by 2020. And then last Sunday, in each of the nations of Nigeria, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, South Africa, there were more Anglicans in church than there were Anglicans and Episcopalians in all of Britain and the United States combined. Meaning that across the globe, Christianity is growing literally at unprecedented rates. We will be the 21st century. We will be more religious than the 20th century was religious. And there's a lot of reasoning behind that. But the bottom line is this, if you are a Christian, is that Jesus is doing exactly what he said he would do. That the Jesus movement is growing around the globe and it's not going to be stopped. And here's what we believe, and I get if this sounds crazy, but there's a lot of history that kind of leans in this direction. It's not going to be stopped until Jesus comes back. And that across the globe, people are not flocking from Christianity. They are moving toward it, even in the most secular cultures, which leads us to this conclusion that what Christians specifically in the West and in America are flocking away from in many cases, is a religion that Christianity was never designed to be in the first place. In fact, here's the point I would make, and you see this throughout the globe, that every time Christianity is presented the way the scripture presents it and Jesus is at the center, you will find that in most cases, it is almost irresistible. It is unbelievably appealing, even with all of your intellectual arguments. And throughout the globe, it's growing. And where you find Christianity is not that appealing and so easy to resist and so easy to walk away from and so easy to deem as irrelevant what in many cases you will find is the wrong version of Christianity. In fact, I would make this point, and this comes from Who Needs God, that specifically, because I can't speak for all their groups by any means, but specifically Christians who grew up in the faith, kind of like I did, who knew the stories, who, who learned about you know, some of those things, who just, they were in the deal at the earliest age, specifically those Christians who have migrated away from Christianity and into the nun category. It is the church's fault. In many cases, it is the, it's guys that do what I do. It is the church's fault. Because here's what you will find as you look at the New Testament, and this is just interesting to investigate, is that people who were nothing like Jesus, like Jesus, people who had no context for what Jesus was offering or what Jesus believed or what Jesus was teaching, liked Jesus, even with all of their arguments, religious, the irreligious, the outcast, sexually, immorally, politically, socially, that people who were nothing like Jesus, like Jesus, and Jesus liked them, and they were drawn to Jesus, not just the miracle worker, not just the teacher, they were drawn to Jesus the person. And here's what I know, that if the same people are not flocking to our churches and sitting on the same row that mirror the individuals that were sitting on the front row with Jesus in the first century, that somehow the church has missed it because we are the physical representation and we are the body of Christ on planet earth until Jesus comes back. And if the message of Jesus is so easy to walk away from and it's so easy to deem as unappealing, it's because we have peddled the wrong version of Christianity. It is the church's fault. And here's one of the reasons that I can say that is as you read and as you have conversations with people about their deconversion stories and they begin to talk to you about the reasons that they walked away from God and the fact that God doesn't make sense anymore. I listen to those stories and I've been able to listen to so many over the course of our years here because we've seen so many come through our church who would categorize, they wouldn't categorize themselves, but are in that nun category. And as you listen to their reasoning for why they walked away from God, and the God that they walked away from, as I listen to them or as I read their stories, I think, well, I would have walked away from that God too. I would have abandoned that God as well. I would have left that a long time ago because in a lot of cases, the things that you are resisting and the things that you resist about God are things that the church should have resisted a long time ago. And so, what I want to do over the next couple weeks, as crazy as this sounds, is I want to clarify, and this is a four or five week journey, I haven't figured out how long it's going to go yet, but clarify what God and what version of God we're talking about. And so specifically today, what I want to do is look at 
guys like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins have updated us over the last 15 years to go, this is what atheism is. This is what new atheism is. And so I want to just take a look at that for a few minutes this morning. And I'll tell you the reason why I want to do that. And my goal is not to convince you. My goal is not to talk you into anything. My goal is not to convince anybody that they're wrong. That's not my agenda today. But here's what I want you to understand. If maybe specifically you're kind of in that none category that I'm not hostile toward, but I'm just unaffiliated and I don't know if I believe or what I believe or maybe, and I've heard so many stories through the course of this weekend already, you got a 33-year-old or a 27-year-old living somewhere and like, you don't even know how to broach the subject, but they find themselves in this category. They grew up in it and they just walked away. Is I wanna update you on what, new atheism looks like for this reason, because here's what you have to understand, that when you walk away from God, you always automatically walk towards something else. When you say no to God, you always are saying yes to something else. And what I hate is I have had so many conversations over the years is sitting down with somebody in that place and them having left God or going, God's just unappealing, it's irrelevant, but they never really considered the options. And so suddenly they find themselves in this tension of, I don't believe this, but I'm not sure I believe this either. And what they didn't understand is when you say no to one thing, you automatically move in another direction and say yes to something else. It's why there's this clarifying question in John chapter 60 that that Peter asked. And I don't know if you know the scriptures, but Peter's the guy who constantly is over-promising and under-delivering and getting himself in trouble by running his mouth. This is one of the shining examples of, of Peter asking a brilliant question that I think lends insight for all of us as it relates to this discussion. One day Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples and um, at this point Jesus is wildly popular. Crowds of thousands are gathering around and then Jesus starts in with one of his really strange talks that nobody understands and so a bunch of people just start to leave. They start to basically unfollow Jesus. It was a time where Jesus gave his whole eat my flesh, drink my blood talk, if you've seen that in the New Testament. And it was figurative, but nobody got it and it just didn't make sense. And so people started to just walk away. I can't follow this guy anymore. And in John chapter six, verse 60, I just wanna read a couple of verses because Peter unearths a brilliant question. On hearing it, this is his disciples after Jesus, very uncomfortable talk. After hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? And verse 61, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Are you offended by this? Are you offended by my cannibalistic, eat my flesh, drink my blood talk? And then verse 66, because Jesus knows the hearts of men. He can answer questions before it's asked, so he knows the tension they're dealing with. So verse 66, from this time on, this is a hinge in Jesus' ministry. Many of his disciples turned back, walked away, and they no longer followed him. And then Jesus turns to his disciples in verse 67 and says, you don't want to leave too, do you? Hey, you guys, you've been with me for a while. Most of you, as far as my inner 12, you've been with me for a couple years. There's maybe hundreds flocking away from Jesus at this point. He's like, do you guys, do you guys want to leave too? Do you guys want to walk away as well? Because this doesn't make sense to you. And then Peter asked this brilliant question in verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? And that's the question. Peter basically in essence is going, I really don't get it. That's a strange talk. Not sure why you would give it at this point in your ministry while so many people are unfollowing you. Not real smart. Obviously you didn't go to seminary. I don't understand it all. Just, I, it doesn't make sense to me, but here's what Peter understood. If not you, then who? And if not this, then what? Because understanding and considering the options oftentimes brings clarity. And so that's what I wanna do for a couple of minutes this morning is consider the options. And again, my goal is not to convince you. I'm serious about that. My goal is not to talk you into anything, but here's what I want you to know if you're in the house or you're online. And honestly, part of the reason we're doing this series is, is our online audience, which is crazy for the size of our church, about 35 countries, people in Australia, Uganda, thousands of people somehow podcast us on a weekly basis. And so this is just as much for people who are not in the room as people who are in the room. But here's what I want you to understand if maybe you're kind of in that category or right now you're trying to figure out how to have a conversation with somebody in that category is that when you say no to God and when you walk away from God, that 
you are automatically moving in the direction of something else. And what you have to understand is that atheism is not just disbelief in God. Atheism is a complex belief system that has some unsettling conclusions. Now, here's what I want to make clear. The fact that it has unsettling conclusions is not a truth test. So again, I'm not trying to convince you. Christianity has unsettling conclusions, unsettling is not a litmus test for truth. If you have a teenage daughter who's dating somebody you don't like right now, that's a perfect example. It is true. It is unsettling. It is disturbing all at the same time, right? Like if you're, if you are so tired of the fact that the Pats just won their fifth Super Bowl, like it is unsettling. It is disturbing. Please go away. But it's true, right? They want it. They want. So like something can be unsettling and true at the same time. And here's why that's important. Some of you have walked away from God, walked away from faith because of some of the unsettling conclusions and you've deemed that it's not true. You just need to know this. Something can be disturbing and unsettling and true at the same time. So I'm not making an argument, but here's what you need to know is that atheism and new atheism is a complex belief system, just like Christianity, with some unsettling conclusions. And when you walk away from one thing, you automatically move in the direction of another thing. So what I want to do for a couple minutes in what I generally title these series, The Worst Messages Ever, because um, it's just a little bit different. It's not really a message, but I want to update you on basically what the six tenets of new atheism are from the guys who've come along to go, hey, in context, here's what you should know. Because if you ever studied this or you've got some kind of a framework, this is what in 2017 they would say it means when you say no to God or you walk away from God, because you automatically walk towards something else. And if you're in that place where you go, man, I think religion is the problem. And so you've walked away. You need to consider that, yeah, you've walked away from one thing, but what are you walking toward? So real quick, are you still with me or have I just glazed over and you're, okay. So the six tenets are just this, and I'm going to go real quick through the first three, or actually I'm going to take more time on the first three, and then real quick on the last three, because you kind of know it already, or you can go look it up for yourself. But the first tenet of, of new atheism is just simply this, the mind myth. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the best I can, and every, after every service, some are like, yeah, I totally got that, I have no idea what you're talking about. So You'll have both sides. You just have to track with me as best you can. The mind myth. Here's, here's the reality. If, if the world is just biology, chemistry, and physics, there is, no, there is no mind. There is no, how do I say this? There is no you in there. There's no you. In a world that is simply governed by biology and physics and chemistry, the thing that we know is the mind is, is not really there. That thing that's tangible but it's also intangible. The place that your mind, your emotions, your will, that thing, your personality, it makes up who you are. But in essence, if there is no God and it's just the laws of physics, there really is no mind. You're just a body. In fact, in his writing, Christopher Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens, who's absolutely brilliant, wrote a book called Mortality, and he, in it, documented the final days of his life. He was suffering from esophageal cancer, died several years ago, but actually died from pneumonia and complications with cancer. And in his final months, he wrote this book, Mortality, to kind of document the journey. In fact, toward the end, I think some of his chapters are literally just one sentence, and he's transcribing them to his wife because like, he's so near death. But in mortality, he talks about going to the doctor and having a conversation that, that you've probably had with a doctor where they begin to discuss a treatment and specifically for him with cancer and talk about, okay, here's what your body's going to do. And they would talk to him about the fact that here's how your body's going to fight this. Here's how your body's going to resist. Here's how your body is going to interact and respond. And through the course of these conversations, at a certain point, Christopher Hitchens just stopped them and said, stop, you guys just need to know I don't have a body. I am a body. I don't have, so stop talking about my body and what my body's gonna do because I don't have a body. I am a body. As I read that, I thought, that, that's it. If, if it's just governed by the laws of physics and chemistry and biology, you are just a body. Your kids are just a body. Your, your wife, your husband is just a body. The people you interact with in your office, they're, they're just a body. And then a side note, kind of unrelated to this, that, that really if it's just physics, if it's just 
biology, if it's just chemistry, there really is, as the way you see it, there is no love, there is no hope, there is no virtue, there is no beauty, because none of those things can be scientifically proven. And yet you live as if those things are true every single day. But as it relates to this, if it's just the laws of physics, there is no you, there is no mind. And maybe that's true. Maybe that's legit. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's unsettling. That's kind of unnerving if that's true. The second um, kind of tenet of new atheism and, is the free will myth. That, and maybe you haven't heard this one before, so I'll spend a second on it, but what they would call determinism, that everything is determined for you. Because in, again, in a world that is simply governed by the laws of physics, there is no room for free will. So everything has been set out and determined in advance. So you thought you asked her to marry you, but it really was determined for you in advance, which maybe gives you an out if things are go- not going well right now. It's like, well, I just, I didn't have any say, and obviously um, the universe made a bad choice. Or maybe, you know, you, you thought you chose to go there or be educated there, but really at the end of the day, everything is determined for you in a world governed by the laws of physics. And again, as you read Stephen Hawking, again, another brilliant writer, he talks about this. In one of his lectures, he makes the point that every, he talks about determinism and makes the point that everything in our lives is determined. And then in that lecture, he proceeds to say, and because everything is determined, it really nothing matters. There is no meaning. So I'm like, okay. Maybe that's true. Maybe there is no meaning. So maybe... And this is in context, Stephen Hawking, the view of new atheism, maybe it doesn't matter whether you love or whether you hate, whether you're good or whether you're bad, whether you lie or whether you tell the truth. But the thing that's unnerving or unsettling is you get up every single day, even if you factored out God, and you try to live as if there is meaning in those things. It's hard to let that go. But if everything has been determined, then there is really no free will. I love this in Black Holes and Baby Universes, one of Stephen Hawking's books. He says this, and I love this. I noticed that even people, and again, he believes this view. This is his view. I noticed that even people who claim everything is predestined and that we can do nothing to change it look before they cross the road. Because, and this is the point, maybe it's true. Again, maybe we don't have any mind. The mind is a myth. You're just a body. And maybe there is no free will. But at the end of the day, it is unlivable, even if it's true. I mean, take this out to its furthest extreme. If you just live as if you are biology, eventually you will be locked up by other biology and you'll lose the free will that I guess you never had to begin with, right? I mean, that's the extreme nature. Maybe there's no mind. Maybe there's no free will. Maybe it's all been determined. But that's just unsettling. And unsettling doesn't mean it's not true. Maybe it's true. But it's a little bit unnerving. And at some level, it's unlivable. You can't really go out this next week and live as if you're just a body. The third thing is this, and this is maybe the most disturbing, is the value myth. That there really is no value. Like if I were to come in today with a box, I couldn't go, well, here's a box of value I brought in to show you. But all of us work and operate in the currency of value and and placing value on things universally. So we find value in people. And and you factor out God. You don't have to believe in God. We, We say things like value in work. There's value in diet. You maybe don't do it, but you see value in it, right? There's all of these things where, again, at a universal level, we'd say there's, there's value in that. But in a world governed by chemistry and biology and simply the laws of physics and there's nothing else, there is no actual value. There's just ascribed value. There's just what you personally give value to, but there's nothing or no standard beyond you where you can hold anybody else accountable to that value. And what's disturbing about that is if that's true, if there is no value because we're simply governed by the laws of physics, it means this, that there is no justice. That justice, to quote who needs God, justice is just what you want it to be. But it's almost impossible to live that way. It's almost impossible to live. And in fact, you'll hear every once in a while, well, you can have your truth and I'll have my truth. Like your truth works for you and that's great for you and my truth works for me. So you have your truth and I have my truth. A truth is relative. 
And at some level, I can make an argument, but at some level, you can kind of get away with that. But here's what's interesting is you have never heard any right thinking person. You have never heard any person in their right mind, regardless of whether they believe in God or not, you've never heard anybody in their right mind say, you have your justice, I'll have my justice. You have your justice and I have my justice. No one in their right mind has ever said that because there are some universal standards that you appeal to. There is genocide happening in other areas of the country and you would look at them and go, listen, no matter how just you think that that is for humanity in your culture, I believe that there is a better value system that says that is not just and it trumps that, that there is something greater, there is something beyond me, there is something beyond what your culture says. There is a greater value system that demands justice and says that that is not right. See, all of us appeal to justice, judge other people by those standards, whether we want to or not. But if there is no God, there is no actual value, and it means there is no actual justice. Justice is just what you want it to be. But that's unnerving, and I think that's unlivable. Because every once in a while, you hear something, you read something, you're exposed to something, and, and you would look maybe across the water and go, no matter how much you think it's right, like genocide and the extermination of people is wicked. And seeing people starve to death and, and just allowing the poor to starve to death is evil. And the buying and selling of people is absolutely depraved. But says who? Because if there is no God and it's just biology and chemistry and physics and you're just a body and there really is no mind and there really is no free will and there really is no actual value, there's just ascribed value as you see the world, which means there is no justice. Justice is just what you want it to be. Who says that there is a superior value system? Who says that buying and selling individuals is wrong? And again, maybe it's true. Maybe there is no actual value, but that's unsettling. And I think at some level, that's almost unlivable. And then the, the fourth thing is this, and I'm gonna go through the last three real quick, and I'm not making a case. I'm just trying to be fair of this is what the argument is. This is what you've studied. So you already know a lot of this, that this would be the new atheism tenets, that something came from nothing. And this is the big mystery because we still don't have an explanation for what came before the Big Bang, but you can't really say before the Big Bang because there was no time before the Big Bang. There was no time, space, matter, laws of nature, laws of physics that govern the laws of, of nature. So, so you can't really say before, there's, there's no time, and you can't really what happened because nothing happened because there was nothing. So this is a big mystery that something came from nothing, and all of a sudden, on the other side of the something, there was time, there was space, there was matter, there was laws of nature, and there was laws of physics. It's why... Um, Richard Dawkins uh, quotes in one of his books as he's, as he's describing this, this kind of, um, this thing that at some level, and he would admit seems implausible and impossible, he, he says that cosmology is waiting on its Darwin. Meaning cosmology is waiting for somebody to come along like natural selection or evolution to go, this is how it happened, but nobody's been able to do it yet. It's just every, everything that's been presented is so implausible and so impractical, impractical and so seemingly impossible that Richard Dawkins says we're still waiting. But if there is no God, this is, this is what you believe, that something came from nothing. And then the, the fifth one is that first life emerged from no life with no help. And again, I'm not making an argument, but this is just the view, that, that first life, even the simplest of life, which doesn't really exist, because there's really no such thing as simple life, there's just simpler life, that it, we're so far away from it that the complexity is staggering. But whether you can explain it, whether you can articulate it, whether you can defend it or not, when you walk away, when you say no to God, what you're embracing is that first life emerged from no life with no help. I love what Francis Collins says that from lifeless matter to the digital elegance of DNA, that first life emerged from no life 
with no help. And then number six, and you know all these, so I'm just gonna move quick, that natural selection is responsible for all life after first life. It's responsible for all of life after first life. And again, Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion, and he's so brilliant, sits down and he's writing about natural selection. Come back to that in just a second. He's writing about natural selection. And in it, he's kind of trying to describe this purposeful, but it's really purposeless kind of force is kind of how he describes it that is purposeless, but at the same time, it's focused. And he tries to give in his brilliant way language around natural selection, that this is how it works. And, and his whole point, when I first read the quote I'm about to read you, I thought Richard Dawkins was making fun of his own view. And then as I read, I realized that's not what he's doing, that again, in his brilliance, he's trying to give language to the fact of, wow, this is how, every, this, this is how it works, that this is how it happened in something that's generally so lifeless and so academic. And so Richard Dawkins in this book attempts to explain this is what natural selection is, and this is him in context. Here's, here's what he says in The God Delusion. Think about it. On one planet in the entire universe... In one planet in the entire universe, molecules that would normally make nothing more complicated than a chunk of rock, molecules that would normally not make anything more complicated than a chunk of rock. Next slide. Gathered themselves together into chunks of rocked size matter of such staggering complexity that they are capable of running and jumping and swimming and flying, and seeing, and hearing, and capturing, and eating other such animated chunks of complexity capable in some cases of thinking, and feeling, and falling in love. And again, when I first read it, I thought, are you making fun of your own view? And he's not. He's saying, uh, like, th there's things that we can't fully explain, but th this, is, this is it. Wow, how incredible that that could happen. Later on, as he is referring to and talking about Charles Darwin, he says this, we now understand essentially how the trick is done. And as I read that, I thought, okay, that, that's it. And I'm not trying to convince you otherwise, but, but that's, that's it. That's, that's, what, that's what, as a new atheist, that's what we're holding to. And, and Richard Dawkins is unfurling the fact of, in his mind, it's, it's brilliant. It's incredible. But here's the other thing around this. And I'm not, again, I'm not trying to make a case. So you can take this for what it is for somebody who has a master's in theology and not biology. All right. But here's the deal. As I, as I look at, as I read, and I love this stuff because I'm a massive nerd, but I read this stuff and read specifically around natural selection. It's hard for me to read it without it not starting to sound like an invisible, personal force with an agenda. You know what I mean? And again, this is just me and my, but to read natural selection, it's hard for me not to begin to think of, you know, because it's this force that nothing's going to put out of the business. It's going to continue to do its thing. This is, how, this is how it all happens. This is how it continues to move forward. And as I read that, that idea, it's hard for me to not read into it what sounds like an invisible personal force that has some kind of an agenda. But that's just me not really knowing what I'm talking about. But here's, here's where I want to lead you today. And this is really, I think, the point that I want to make. If you've walked away from faith, if you started to answer the, the question, does God make sense with no, if it started to feel really unappealing to you, I almost guarantee it has nothing to do with any of that. In fact, for most of you, you never sat down with Richard Dawkins' book. You've never read Sam Harris. You, you've never sat down over coffee to investigate. Maybe it happened in a classroom, but for most of us, it didn't. And there wasn't like this light bulb moment where atheism seemed so much more appealing to you and you just felt this gravitational pull in that direction. For most of you, the reason that you have walked away from God, the reason that you have abandoned faith has nothing to do with those things. Now, you've used the arguments. You've sat down and thrown a few of them out with your parents, maybe to convince them or, or uh, you know, to a friend somewhere in a coffee shop or a Starbucks. But for most of you who are walking away, it has nothing to do with any of that. The reason that you have begun to walk away from faith and walk away from God is far more personal. It's far more personal to you. 
And in fact, I would make the case that your version of God, it's not that atheism is so much more appealing to you, but your version of God and maybe the version that you grew up with has lost its appeal. Like it doesn't really seem to make sense to you anymore. In fact, I'd say it this way. You have lost or you are losing your faith in God. That this is the issue for you. This is what you're walking away from. It's not so much that you're walking toward something else, but you're walking away from and have lost or are losing your faith in God. And as crazy as maybe this sounds for the next few weeks to the best of my ability, I want to help some of you see that the God that you stopped believing in never existed to begin with. That as arrogant as this sounds, that maybe you had the wrong version of God. And my goal is not to convince you. My goal is not to give you some kind of invitation. My goal is not to coerce you into anything else. My goal is to inform you. And if it bothers some of you, that's great. I do have that as part of my agenda. But I just want to inform you. And I want to move you toward asking the question, if not you, then who? And if not this, then what? And maybe at the end of the day, maybe, if you're online, you're listening to this, or you're in the house this morning, maybe at the end of the day, I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe it's true. Maybe there is no mind. Maybe it's just a, a myth and an illusion. Maybe you really are just a body. Your kids are just a body. Maybe at the end of the day, there really is no value. There's no actual value. There's just ascribed value. And justice really is just what you want to be. As disturbing as that is to me, maybe that's true. Maybe there is, your kids really don't have value. You, your spouse doesn't really have actual value. Maybe all of that is legit, as disturbing as that is for me. But here's what I know about most of you. You hope not. You hope not. There is something inside of you where you hope this and you hope what you see is not all that there is. It's what Solomon wrote thousands of years ago in this little, this little letter, Ecclesiastes, where he said, God has placed eternity into the hearts of man. There is a natural curiosity in you that you may be having trouble really quieting that moves you in the direction to want to be here, to want to grapple with this question, to want to try to answer, does God make sense? Because eternity has been set in your heart, i.e. there is something in you that says there has got to be more than this. There has got to be meaning. It has to matter whether we love or hate, whether we're good or bad, whether we lie or whether we're honest. But in a world where there is no God, the smart guys in the room would tell you it doesn't matter. But there's something in us that has a trouble, a hard time letting that go. You may have walked away from God. You may at some level embrace some of this, though a lot of you who've walked away would go, I don't really believe this. But the smart guys say, yes, you do if you've walked away. But there's something in you that says, I hope I hope there's more. And what I want to lead us toward in the next few weeks is determining and maybe leading you toward the reality that the only hope for that hope, the only hope for that hope that's inside of you is God. And it's only found in the person of Jesus who we legitimately believe came to planet earth and lived a life that we could not live and died on a cross for all of our sins and in history walked out of a grave alive and is offering salvation and life and not just eternity when you die, but life right now that gives meaning and purpose and hope and says it matters. And there's more than what you see and there's more than what you're experiencing in the moment. But it is only found in God. And your hope for that hope that's inside of you is him and him alone through the person of Jesus. And so here's my closing question. And we're just getting started. I only have 35 minutes and I just went 45. So give me a break and you need to come back. All right. But it's Peter's questions. To whom? Shall we go? It is the question to start with. You don't have to believe anything. You don't have to embrace anything. But if not you, then who? And if not this, then what? Would you just pray with me all over the house? And, and if that's kind of weird to you, I get it. But just out of respect 
for other people who are in the room right now in this moment. And I just want to give this one simple invitation, and I want to give it specifically to those of you who I don't know how overtly you would answer the question or whether you'd maybe be bold enough or courageous enough to go, no, I just don't believe it doesn't make sense to me. Maybe you're there, but maybe you're kind of somewhere in between where it doesn't make sense. It seems unappealing. Specifically for a lot of you, what you grew up with seems really unappealing at this point. And you walked away and you have lost or maybe you're in the place of you are losing your faith in God. And that's really the issue. And so with heads bowed and eyes closed, I just want to give you this simple invitation. And I think it takes some courage to do this. And so I give you props if you do. But if you would just start by asking Peter's question, right where you are with all of your unknowns, with all your wrestling, with all the tension that you feel, to just ask, to whom shall I go? And God, if it's not you, then who? And if it's not this, then what is it? Because when I walk away from you, I am automatically walking toward something else. And you may not land on the side of, I believe this, or or, this makes sense to me, but you at least owe it to yourself to ask the question. And when you walk away from one thing, you need to know what you are walking toward. And so all over the house with heads bowed and eyes closed, and if you're podcasting this somewhere around the world, this question's for you if you're in that place. You would just start to ask the question, if not you, then who? If not this, then what? And you would say courageously, I just want to start there. And it may not lead me to belief, but I owe it to myself. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're in that place, would you just lift up your hand? Because I, I think a public declaration for the sake of you sometimes helps just, just kind of seal it of, I, I'm going to be courageous enough. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else you'd say, I just want to begin with that question. Yeah. If not you, then who? If not this, then what? Jesus, I thank you for your grace. I, I thank you for, for those of us who followed you for a long time, God, who have a little bit of a track record with you. That over time, the confidence and the hope that, Lord, we feel so certain of is found in you. That salvation is found in no one else, in no other name, but the name of Jesus. God, and I I pray for for those who are not at that place, that the fact that they would just be here, the fact that they would just listen somewhere online says so much about them and we have so much genuine respect for them. I just pray that they would be courageous enough to begin to ask the question. And that my hope is that somehow, some way, you would begin to lead them toward you, toward the life, the hope that is found in Jesus. And so God, do your thing all over the house, all over the places and the environments where people are listening and just reveal yourself. But God, we thank you to affirm Peter's words right after his defining, clarifying question, that you are the only ones who have the words of eternal life. It is only found in Jesus. And so God, throughout these weeks, I pray maybe you would quiet some of the restlessness in our soul that seeks and lives as if there's meaning, that we'd find where that meaning is coming from. And we pray this, and what we do believe is the saving, reconciling, and hope-giving name of Jesus. Amen.